The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison & Stefan, The Craft House Brewery, now with two locations. The Tone Factory Recording Studio. Moonshot.com t-shirt designs. Mr. Antenna, now your host, Jim Tofty. Andy Summers is really a modern-day renaissance man. He's a musician, composer, photographer, guitarist, documentarian, and now author. He has released his first work of fiction called Fretted and Moaning, a collection of 45 short stories. I'll ask him about this most excellent book and past and future days of the police because there have been a lot of rumors lately. Andy joins me now from his home studio in Los Angeles. Hi, Jim. This is Andy Summers. Andy, how you doing? Lost in my own mental recesses. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing something, very engaged with something, and I didn't realize what the time was. Yeah, okay, sorry about that. Oh, not a problem. You know, it happens all the time. You'd be amazed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope that you're having a great summer so far. Well, it's a different kind of summer, isn't it? You yes. Know, not, not any of us are really used to, but everything's okay with me. I love your writing style uh, in oh, your thanks. in your book, Fretted and Moaning, and I always have liked your, your writing style. By the way, one of your short stories, Carter and Lewis, kind of evokes, mm. to me, it evokes kind of a Quentin Tarantino type of a vibe. <laughs> well... Okay, I'll take that. You know, <laughs> Quentin Tarantino. I loved Quentin Tarantino's last film. I thought it was the best one he'd ever done, actually. So, I was, so I definitely take that as a compliment. Thank Same you here, and, and I'm not just I'm not pitching myself as an agent who could get you a Quentin Tarantino <laughs> movie based on your story. Who knows? Life is strange. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. your your short stories seem to have this common theme, and and they're about a guitar or and or a guitar player, right? Yeah, the guitar is a character pretty much in every story, and so people's lives revolve and spin around it either to their advantage or detriment you know most of these stories have got a twist in the end you know so uh yeah you know i've passed through a lot of this stuff so um you know i was just weaving them together to make this this compendium if you like you've written what you know uh, uh that's for sure and yeah. it it seems like these stories have been put together over uh, quite a long period of time, yes? Well, yeah, they're sort of blobs of stories. I mean, some of them I had, I think, around 2011, 12, maybe five or six that I'd sort of just written out for fun. It was the first, I don't know what he made me do them, but I showed them to people and they really liked them. And, yeah, let's see, I was on tour 2018, probably, because 19, or 19, and I did some of them on stage, and it was somewhere in there. People said, oh, you really got to do this? You've got to do more. And, you know, so I, I sort of said, right. You know, I had a lot of notes of, and ideas for more of the same, you know, more stories. So then I, I just sort of got down to it and started writing until I, I had the whole collection. Early stuff and then a, a big mass of stuff at the end. Andy, it is one thing to, to write stories, get them published, but you do them in front of an audience. What is that like? That has to be, you know, a little nerve-wracking. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you're going to be sort of born, born to the stage, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> to some degree, which I was. Um, no, you get into sort of acting them out. You, I mean, you can't sit there and read them in a flat monitor. No, I mean, you've got to sort of take it on. But, you know, I'm a natural show-off, so, I, you know, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm sort of exchanging the guitar for the voice and acting out the stories. 
but interestingly, when you've done it once, then you do it a second time, the third time, you start really getting the hang of it. You know, get better at it. In fact, I've got a gig coming up, so I'm going to do it at the Grammy Museum in a, on the 18th of this month. I'm sure you've been there before. It's beautiful, isn't uh, it? Yeah, it's a very nice place, and I, I have a certain affection for it, and this will be my third time there. Yeah. So did getting feedback from your friends and perhaps family, is that the type of thing? And I'm sure it was mostly positive yeah. that you said, hey, I, I think I'll continue with this. Yeah, it, it was. You know, I mean, I'd written before. In fact, I seem to spend half my life writing because there's so many demands of me to write something about this, write a small letter. And that, I mean, I've, I've been writing for years. Anyway, and of course, I'd written the um, autobiography, which came out in 2006. Right. Subsequently turned into a movie, and, you know, because I was pretty deeply into it. So it's not like I'm, I've never written a word before. I've written a lot, actually. An avid uh, reader, you know, I ne- I'm never with that book in my hands. So, um, you know, I'm very engaged with it, if you like, as a medium. You have also, it, I don't know if what you can tell me a little bit about this solo instrumental album, Harmonics of the yeah. Night. Sure. Um, well, um, I mean, it's got a slightly interesting story, this one, because the, you know, you know, I'm someone who, records anyway you know i usually put out a record a year we've had a bit of a gap this time mostly because of the pandemic but the way this one started was i had two um photography exhibitions in museums in europe and this first one was in montpellier in france and i was in france actually a few months ahead of my actual exhibition opening day and i was able to go there and see the the building and what it was like, which was very beautiful. And that's when I thought, you know, this time I'm going to do special music to go with photography and I want it playing on the loop the whole time. And then I came back to LA and I was given this new pedal guitar, you know, effects pedal. It was really very nice sounding. And uh, so I made this uh, 20 minute improvisation in very kind of meditative, spacey, but kind of intriguing harmonically to uh, play on a loop in the museum. And that's that because I, I felt that track was a success. It, it got me into like turning out, you know, rolling on through a whole CD's worth. So I now have a 12 track album called Harmonics of the Night, which will be out on the 8th of October. Yeah. It's brilliant, really, that, that you've, uh, the the photographs uh, reflect the music or vice versa. Uh, it's it's almost like yeah. on a smaller scale, you're, you're scoring a, a film in a way. Yeah, I mean, this is a very big thing for me at the moment. In fact, I'd had somebody yeah. over here today who wants to do a big tech festival and show some of these things I've done. I mean, my ambition is to uh, score... Uh, you know, I have a huge photographic archive because I do a lot of photography all over the world. And uh, we've done two so far. I have 12 tracks. I've got a long way to go. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's like, woo. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I did one. Which I, the second one I did, actually, I thought was really successful. It was all shot in downtown Los Angeles, which, you know, it was interesting because it involved me. I, I, what I actually did was uh, about eight or nine times I went to downtown LA at about eight o'clock in the morning where there was a this was like in January and February of this year and um, beautiful low winter sunlight and absolutely no one in the streets so I got this like fantastic sort of ghostly archive of downtown LA and, and so I put one of the tracks to that and you know we do this sort of technique of you know drifting across the still photographs and then they morph from one to another it's, it's very much uh, like a movie yeah. so 
we're setting up to do another one pretty soon. Yeah, so that's what I'm doing, yeah. Well, you know, when I first heard your guitar work, uh, whether it was on Roxanne or Walking on the Moon, it was different from anything else that I was listening yeah. to on the radio. I think I was in college at that point. And yeah, yeah. what kind of mad scientist are you in the studio that <laughs> you accomplish this sound that is so different than what everyone yeah. else does? Well, it, it is fairly purposeful um, because, of course, you know, I've played a guitar all my life, you know, from, you know who I really am um, you know one of the, the you know eternal quests that just goes on and on I think is really to try not to sound like anyone else to have a signature sound and to make everything fresh as if you know um, so I'm always like no I'm not a total boffin nerdy scientist but I, I do make a fairly <laughs> strong effort to get things to work in a different way so that you know you go oh I've had it quite like that before you know, with all today's uh, gadgetry, it's kind of amazing. We're in the sort of golden era of all these things you can do with guitar signals. So, you know, and I especially did it in the police, um, partly because we were coming out of, you know, very fervent punk scene in London where the guitar, all, they all sounded the same. Yeah. And, you know, as we started to slightly find our musical signature, one of the things for me was not to sound like those guys and to think, well, I got to play two hours on stage every night. How am I going to make the guitar interesting all the way through? And it was like using these devices and in different mixtures, if you like, until I could, I felt that I had a, a distinctive sound, which is what you hear on a lot of the tracks, you know, I'm walking on the moon, for instance, that huge opening call. Plus, the kind of harmonic stuff I played was different than punk bands. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of this, what is it, this open string voice chord that it just makes Sometimes it... Sometimes open strings, yeah. 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 It's a huge advantage you have on the guitar, say, over a piano, that you can play, you know, stranger chords, um, instead of just playing G major, you know, if you play F sharp on the fourth string at the, uh, the fourth fret, and then the open G, and you let the D on the third fret, the second string, and then you hit the top E open. You start to get something that's kind of slightly more piquant, a little more exotic, more guitar-like, and, you know, really belonging to the guitar rather than another instrument. So, yeah, I always look for those things. Like, how can I make these voicings fresh and definitely more gnarly, more, you know, will get your ear. So... It's definitely what I look for. The documentary. I was so happy that you had done this, Can't Stand Losing You, mm. Surviving the Police, because yeah. it's put together by an actual member of the band, you, with all of those yeah. photos, and it was put together in a way that you were also documenting what was going on with the current tour yeah. at, the, at the time. It was really, yeah. really fantastic. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, and I did this pretty early on in the you know, the band's history, and I was really kind of, well, you know what happened to the police, of course, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, I was in the center of the cyclone, snapping yeah. away, <laughs> you know, and then when we came out the other end, it's it's weird, actually, because we got it to the other end of all that, and, you know, and then I just put it all away and forgot about it, and went, no, nah, that's no good. And then someone else looked at it, and I went, oh, my God, this is incredible, this stuff you just like... You know, and then I sort of re-engaged with it, and eventually I made another book, a big book on Tashin that came out, and, and got completely re-engaged with photography, and it's, it's a big part of my life now. How did playing in a prog band 
before the police. How did that influence what you did in the police, if if at all? Are you thinking of a band like Dan Talion's Chariot, possibly? Right, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that was those days. Too much um, chemical abuse, probably. <laughs> we were all searching for the, the, the light, you know. Yes. It's, it's funny, it's sort of comic uh, when you look back upon it now. Uh, we survived it, you know. That's good. That's good, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. you know, and Stuart and Sting were already playing together, I think, before you joined them. How they did, were trying, yeah. yeah. How did you uh, meet those guys? Through a mutual friend. Who wanted to do something with them? Um, well, you know, let me tell you, there's a slightly more mystical meeting thing to it than than that, and it was this. At that time, Tubular Bells, you may remember, was sure. a huge record. It was like number one in the UK for two years straight. I'm Mike Oldfield, you know, this sort of faux kind of orchestral thing he did. But it was a giant hit. And I was around on the scene in London at that time. I was very involved with Virgin Records. And a, 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 you know, a performance of it came up, the Newcastle Symphony Orchestra. Mike Oldfield wasn't up for it, and so I was asked to go and do it, which I did. I played with the orchestra, and I went to Newcastle and played with the orchestra. They were all very nice, successful, and but, you know, the concert was split into two, and there was an intermission, and the intermission act was a band called Last Exit. I watched them for about five minutes and then wandered off. The bass player was Sting. <laughs> <laughs> He was still out there. Anyway, so that's that. And then two weeks later, I was back with another guy in Newcastle in North England called Kevin Ayres. There was another band in the hotel with us called Curved Air. You know, naturally, we were sure. all We all got together, ended up in somebody's room, all drinking beer and smoking, whatever. And I got into talking with this very brash young American. He was the drummer of that. We were lying on the floor. <laughs> yelling at each other anyway it was Stuart and um, <laughs> sure. so that moment passed and I went back to whatever I was doing in London and then three weeks later this other guy oh no three months later this other guy who knew them both got us together with him we all met in the studio and I, I'm just playing with him and trying to get used to these two guys who I didn't know they were and they both eventually came up to me and said you know we, I met you in Newcastle you know Sting says I was in that other band <laughs> Was playing on that Mike Oldfield. It just says, you know, uh, we were in the same hotel together. I went, oh yeah. So you know, it was almost like the hand of fate had reached out and grabbed us all three and put, put us together. Of course, isn't that amazing? Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah, how that happens. And what do you remember the first rehearsal and what the band was yeah. trying to attain? Well, it was a weird setup because this guy Mike Howlett, same was got us together to. He was a bass player of the group called Gong. They had been very big in the UK. They broke up. And one year later, they decided they'd get back together for one, only one reunion concert. And it was going to be an eight-hour concert in Paris. And they, and so the thing was, each member of the band would bring his own new band, which would make up a substantial portion of the whole concert. And the last thing that would happen would be Gong themselves reunited. So Mike Howlett had me and Sting and Stuart as his band. And so we rehearsed to go and do, do this uh, one show in France. But of course, you know, the fate was sealed by me playing with them so much and sort of taking over and sort of directing them and pulling the whole thing together. Because at first I thought, well, they're not very good, these guys. Yeah, and yeah. thought, mm, yeah, not so great. You know, I couldn't quite get with the program. They were trying to be a punk band. 
Yeah. But, you know, there was there was a lot more layers to it than that, of course. You know, as, as we really got to know one another, it's like Sting and I had a very similar backgrounds musically. There was a whole set of references that we had between us. Uh, we were much closer than we thought. And um, the only thing that first session I remember was Sting said, how about we try this song? And he had a song called Visions of the Night. And I thought, wow, this is really great, this one. You know, and um, that's when I got a little bit excited about it. Yeah, but we went on rehearsing anyway, and we got pretty slick after three weeks of rehearsals. And then, of course, the day that was it, and then you know the rest unfolded as where you know they just realized that I was the guy they needed. Well, and you know, like you say, you're right in the middle of the punk scene, but the difference is you guys were very well trained, and for lack of a better phrase, did you have to kind of dumb it down initially for audiences? Well, uh, I don't like to say dumb it down because I don't think people are necessarily dumb, but uh, we had to play <laughs> fast and furious and, yeah, pretty simple. Um, you know, the complexity of what we got to came a bit later. Yeah, at the beginning you had to play fast and furious and accept a lot of people gobbing on you. You know, it was pretty horrific. Actually. Yeah, that part of it, certainly. Well, yeah. and not that there's anything wrong with Fast and Furious. I, one of the songs I loved uh, right out of the gate was Fallout, which I don't think you yeah. played a lot, uh, but it was really good. Yeah, we did it occasionally, you know, but we, the material became more sophisticated. As, you know, we really knitted together and Sting realized I could play all this shit, you know, that right. no one else could play. And he had a whole book full of songs that really demanded, you know, a much better player than they'd had. You know, it, it happened, you know, we started to get accepted, you know, and then by the time the punks had, had sort of accepted us in London, it was too late. We were off and running. Yeah. MTV is celebrating their 40th anniversary. What effect did that channel have on the band? Because you guys certainly played a big part in that. Well, I mean, you... You know, it was a bit like the punk scene where if you weren't on MTV, you might as well give up. And of course, we dominated it. In fact, yeah, 1983 was the the year of the police with MTV, and of course, we were number one for four months straight. I think with the album, and everybody take was number one for eight weeks. So you know, it was a miracle year. You know, if you like, and it, it, we were all over MTV all year long. You reunited in 2007, 2008. I I was at one of those shows, the one here in Las Vegas, and yeah, who called who about getting together again? Well, you know, I don't know if there was a it that simplifies it. You know, there's a lot of underlying sort of mysticism going on. <laughs> you know, it's like you know, it's one of those things. It's just in the air, and um, uh, you know, that year I met Sting out in LA, and we had dinner. We had a very nice dinner together with our wives. Good evening, lots of chat. That was it. And then um, a bit later on in the year, now the funny story is this: I had my book coming out. The uh, one train later, I went to New York to promote it. They wanted me to, you know, read it I'd, and talk to in radio and all that. Sting was in New York and he had that loot album out. Right. So we gave each other a call. We're both in New York, and he said, "Well, I'm I'm appearing at New <laughs> at Barnes and Noble uptown. At, you know, is it Lincoln Center or somewhere tonight at seven o'clock?" I said, "Oh, that's funny because I'm appearing at." <laughs> Barnes and Noble downtown also at seven o'clock reading this book. <laughs> so we were laughing together like, oh my God, it's come to this. You know, we're both at Barnes and Noble on the same night. Well, that was kind of a, a funny moment, but it was sort of pointing the arrow in the right direction. And then, um, yeah, a couple of months later, I was in London. So once again, we got together, we spent the whole night hanging out 
And then I think he called his manager or his business manager in New York next day. So I think it was a, you know, he had various possibilities about what he could do next. And uh, he decided he, he wanted to do that reunion tour. Oh, so, so yeah. We was... got the call from not, not, not the man himself, but the authorities, as it were. And off we went. Great, great show, too, with Elvis Costello and the police. I. By the way, uh, maybe you can clear this up for me. I thought I had heard that you guys were working on a new album. Several tracks are already laid down, and there might possibly be another worldwide tour in 2022. Am I completely making this up? That I Well, I want you to keep putting that vibe out, because it would be good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> keep doing that, man. Sow the seeds. Um, I don't know. I mean, these things are always in the air. I mean, it doesn't seem very likely at the moment, but I'll tell you something that is coming out, which is... Uh, the film of police around the world and that'll be out i think it's going to be out now it's gotten delayed it'll be out next spring but there's a live album that goes with it that is absolutely incredible it's the best one we've ever had i think maybe that's the album that i keep hearing about that's, that's about. an absolute knockout i sat here yesterday and played the whole thing for music journalists and it was just christ <laughs> early days kyoto japan incredible Nice. What do you think, think about What do you think about those early CBGB uh, shows you guys did? By the way, can you remember those? Yeah, I remember them because yeah. you know, I mean, you do remember the early stuff because it was so difficult. You know, I mean, I mean that show. We, I think Stuart was already in New York. Steve and I flew over. We arrived at Kennedy uh, eleven from the UK, and we were supposed to be on stage at twelve in the Bowery. <laughs> so <laughs> we got picked up. with shot, you know, from Kennedy to New York. You know, it was such a grotty little place. Yes, you know? it, was. it was a real dump. Yeah, it was a dump. You know, but um, we were so excited to be at what we thought was the mecca of punk. Right. Um, and there we were, and you know, there was a reasonable number of people, and we were on stage, and we went down an absolute storm. You know, on that first set, you know, we played about well, we were a bit late getting on stage at about twenty minutes past midnight. Then we did another show at two o'clock, but it went down a complete storm. And uh, we were so encouraged and thrilled to be in New York and have actually played at CBGB's, which was, you know, like getting, you know, your credentials. You know, we got the official stamp as we played there. Yeah, got things started for the Ramones and Debbie Harry and television yeah. and the list goes on. Yeah. Yeah. And it went from there. And we quickly realized that, oh, you know, we're not a punk band, we're a new wave. That's the term. That's the term they were using in the U.S., new wave. So we like that much more. It felt a lot more open, you know, whereas punk was a much more sealed-in kind of London thing. Right. Yeah. Well, Andy, Fretted and Moaning is a fantastic book. Like I said, I'm about three-quarters of the way through it. I love oh, it. Great. can be yeah. ordered at rocket88books.com and I believe at andysummersbooks.com. Yeah. A pleasure and an honor talking to you, and, and stay healthy. Right, we, we look forward to everything you're you're working right. on. Lovely. I really appreciate it. I Thank you so it. much. Thanks, Andy. Bye-bye. Cheers. You know, I've talked to Andy's bandmate, Stuart Copeland, in the past, and he was just as evasive with the non-denial denials about the future of the police. And, you know, as a longtime radio person, I was fortunate enough to get a lot of comped tickets to see bands over the years, but the police, on the same bill as Elvis Costello, was sure money well spent for me. Right up there in my top five with The Clash and The Rolling Stones. Well, that does it for this episode of The Fake Show Podcast with guest Andy Summers. I'm Jim Tofty. Thanks so much for stopping by. I'll see you next time. Listen to The Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com. Yeah,